When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Scott Shute. He's the head of mindfulness and compassion at LinkedIn. And we are going to dive into what does that title even mean? I've never heard of a title called Head of Mindfulness and Compassion, let alone at a company like LinkedIn. So we're going to dive into that, what his role encompasses, what does that mean, how does that play out, why mindfulness is important in the workplace, as well as compassion. And most people, when they hear that word, they don't think of that being something that happens in a workplace setting. Well, we're going to talk exactly about that, as well as his new book, The Full Body Yes, Change Your Work and Your World from the Inside Out. It's a great conversation, and I'm just going to get out of the way and say enjoy this conversation with Scott Shute. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show, Scott Shute. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Oh, my gosh. This is We had some technical difficulties or, or scheduling difficulties, so to have this actually finally come through, I feel good. You know, as a productivity person, I finally fulfilled the obligation that my calendar dictated, and so there's kind of a little bit of giddiness and joy in that, so there you go. And it's going to be worth the wait. Yes. How about that? Yes, definitely. So this is going to be a strange question. Maybe not. You probably get this all the time. I have never heard of the title head of mindfulness and compassion programs, let alone that that's at LinkedIn. You got to fill me in here. Like, what does that that role encompass? Like, I I can put a lot of things in that box, but I don't know that they would fit. That's right. Actually, it's the first question I always get (laughs) because it's the most uh, it's the most obvious one. Okay, so I'm a bit of a dual agent. So I've had a career as an executive. So I, I showed up at LinkedIn uh, leading global customer operations. I was the VP of global customer operations. That's essentially customer service and all of the stuff that faces customers that's not sales. And I've also in my life had a lifelong practice. I started a meditation or kind of contemplation practice when I was 13. I started teaching when I was in college. It's been a huge part of my life, but I've never talked about that at work. But I got to LinkedIn nine years ago now. I was in my operations role and I noticed it was such an open place. I mean, the CEO was talking about his own meditation practice using Headspace. And I thought, wow, maybe this is a place where I can bring that part of myself to work. And so I started, well, it took me a long time to get up the nerve to, but I started by leading one meditation class on a Thursday afternoon at 4.30 in the, get this, the heavenly conference room, which I thought was very auspicious. (laughs) And that first Thursday, there was one dude there. And I'm sure that he was just as terrified as I was because, you know, I never saw that guy again. But the next week there were three and then there were five. And then I would get invited to bigger things. 
you know, the marketing team would do an offsite and they'd have breakout sessions with like 80 people in these breakout sessions. And they'd invite me to lead a meditation session for them. You know, the other options were things like square dancing or whiskey tasting, but you know, hey, still people killed. <laughs> Still came to my thing. Or I'd get invited to the CFO would have a summit with three or 400 finance people. And I'd kick the whole thing off with a meditation. I'm like, that's pretty cool, right? This is pretty much my dream job, being able to do my ops job and this at the same time. That's awesome. But for me, the tipping point was three years ago, almost exactly, our CEO gave the commencement address at Wharton and talked about compassion right? You get your one big piece of advice in a commencement address. And he said, look, if you're going to be successful in life, successful in work, be compassionate. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And then the next time he's on TV, this is all the reporters want to talk about. They have one question about LinkedIn and like 20 questions about compassion and leadership. I was thinking, okay, it's time. Cause look, I've been in my ops role for six years. It's time for me to do something else, but also at LinkedIn, it's time. Cause our CEO just told essentially all the employees of LinkedIn that the best thing they can do, the number one thing that they can do is be compassionate. But what does that even mean? Like, do, do we even know what that means? And so I made a pitch to him and our head of HR and with their great support, essentially created this role three years ago with a blank sheet of paper. And so, yeah, I'm the head of mindfulness and compassion programs at LinkedIn. And so my job is to mainstream mindfulness and to operationalize compassion while we change work from the inside out. Wow. So I've got to ask, like, what did you draw up as like the job description <laughs> for that yeah. that title when you were formulating this? And, and has it transformed over time, over these last three years? It has remained remarkably intact, in fact. I mean, so, some tactics have changed, but this idea of mainstreaming mindfulness and operationalizing compassion has maintained. So let me give you an example. On the mindfulness front, I do things like not me and others, but we lead meditation sessions, something like pre-pandemic, 40 or 50 meditation sessions around the globe. And for scale, we're about a 16,000 person company. We give everybody access to an app. We like the app called Wise at Work from our partners at Wisdom Labs because it's built for people who are working. And then every year during October, we have a 30-day challenge to use the app. And the challenge is if you complete 20 sessions in the month of October, you get a t-shirt. Or this year we did a hoodie. And honestly, what I would say is never underestimate the power of a free hoodie on people's behavior because lots of people signed up to do it this year. We do community sessions, kind of like study groups where people join in once a week. They have a five to eight minute recorded lecture. They have a five to eight minute practice. And then they have discussion about how those things are meaningful in their lives. It's kind of like book club, you know? And so all of these things are meant to mainstream mindfulness. So think of it like mental exercise, just like we have a gym and everybody knows that they're supposed to work out. We're trying to provide the same information, the same research about mental exercise, about mindfulness, about meditation, so that people will take us up on it if they want. And it, it really has helped people, helped their mental well-being. So that's half of what I'm up to. Yeah. So I, you bring up an interesting point. So I've heard of workplaces offering free memberships to physical training, you know, working out in a gym. And I've even heard of them covering mental health. We call it mental health, but really it's kind of more emotional health. It's psychological counseling and all that kind of stuff. This is a different thing, though, but it's still a, a well-deserved aspect of life. For sure. And health to be paying attention to. So that's very interesting. 
Yeah. If you think about, I like to think about the history of work to put this into perspective. So here's, here's my short history of work simplified to the highest degree. But in the old days, like the really old days, when we're building the pyramids, we had kings and slaves, right? And then later we had landowners and non-landowners or serfs and workers were not highly valued during the agrarian age. And this lasted for 5,000 years or you know, longer. And then we had the industrial age. And you imagine a factory filled with people making the same thing, making widgets. Again, workers were not super highly valued. But now in the information age, a company like LinkedIn, we don't have hard assets. We're not selling copper or cars. We're selling information. And so by far, our biggest asset is our people. And so we want to make sure that our people are at their best, both physically and mentally, because we know it's good for the company. And so there's this evolution that has happened around physical exercise. Like our grandparents didn't exercise physically, but now 50 years later, everybody knows that exercise is good for you, reduces stress, reduces anxiety. It's good for you. And so, so companies offer gyms and we're on the same path of normalcy around mental exercise. Because honestly, at work for information companies, how many of us need to run a six minute mile or carry heavy boxes? It still exists, you know, in some jobs in some places. But for the vast majority of workers in the information age, what we need is mental clarity or emotional stability. And so these offerings that help us with our mental well-being, wow, so incredibly valuable, not only to the employee, but much more even valuable to the companies themselves. So you said that's one half. The other half, yes. you know, that, that kind of encompasses some of what goes into the mindfulness side of your role. But the compassion side, I'm interested in that. How does that play out in your role as well as uh, in the workplace? Sure. So compassion, we're trying to operationalize compassion. Okay. What does that mean? <laughs> well, first, let's define it a bit. So I think about it like this. Compassion is three things. It's the capacity to have an awareness of others a mindset of wishing the best for them. You could say a mindset of kindness. And third is the courage to take action. All right, so that's simple to see among individuals, but it also works for teams. It also works for companies. And there's research here too that shows that individuals, teams, and companies who operate this way are actually more successful. Like companies make more money when they do it this way, when they on purpose take care of all of their stakeholders and not just their shareholders. And so for me, my job is at the employee level, I teach workshops and that sort of thing. But I feel my role is broader in that LinkedIn is already a very compassionate place. And so I'm not trying to make LinkedIn a compassionate place. I'm trying to figure out how did we get here? And so I'm a little bit like an investigative reporter. You know, if the executives at LinkedIn, if we were all going to go to another company and try to recapture the greatness, what would be the top five or 10 practices that we would bring? And so I'm busy trying to codify that into things we'll use on a day-to-day -day basis. So as an example, we have a, a company called Glint that is part of the LinkedIn and part of the Microsoft network. And Glint does employee surveys. They also do leadership 360s. We've recently codified what are the top 10 behaviors of a leader that have compassion at the roots. And then this is something that using Glint or other tools, you could actually ask your employees, like, how does this leader do it? And then if you find out out of the 10 questions, I'm light on number three and number seven, we could tie those to LinkedIn learning because we have these other assets. You could say, oh, I'm not, turns out I'm not a very good listener or I need to enhance my listening skills or whatever the skill is. And so we're trying to create this closed loop system that, first of all, codifies compassion and gets it out there as a system, but also really makes it live with the offerings that we have. So that's part of my job. 
Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you enjoy Beyond the To-Do List, I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans. I'm Sarah Hart Unger, the host of Best Laid Plans, a podcast devoted to all things planning and planning adjacent. I talk about everything from paper planner reviews to deep dives into all things productivity from keeping track of goals and tasks to fitting in your true priorities and reducing the stress around planning and organizing across different areas of life. I am a practicing physician and mother of three, so I have a lot going on in my own life and am intimately familiar with the time constraints that impact us all. And I love sharing my own productivity strategies and learning from others who have their own ideas to share. I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans, available on all podcast platforms, or visit my website, theshoebox.com, T-H-E-S-H-U-B-O-X dot com to learn more. So this is probably the longest I've ever gone with not saying, hey, and this person's here to talk about their new book, you know, <laughs> which is great. I love that. I love breaking the mold there. But it, I, think it comes in, I think it comes into play right now because then you've taken what you've been working on probably more than just the last three years, but for the, yes. the whole time you've been there. And, and before that, for example, I mean, you're bringing your full totality of your experience to head in this book, which is called The Full Body Yes, Change Your Work and Your World from the Inside Out. And so obviously it begs the question, what is The Full Body Yes? <laughs> exactly. The Full Body Yes is when you just know Right. There's these moments in time when everything aligns physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, whatever that is for you, whatever words you'd put along it, everything lines up to this true north. Sometimes even for a true north, you didn't even know you had, but you just know. Now, sometimes that can happen when you're reaching for breakfast. Am I going to have cereal or eggs? And you just know which one feels better. That's fine. But it's way more poignant and powerful when we've been struggling. Right? Do I take this job or that job? Do I leave this relationship? Do I start that relationship? These big, hard decisions. Because sometimes we know in our gut, but our mind tells us something else. And so, look, sometimes this full body yes happens by grace. It just comes over us and we know the answer. But there's also ways to go get it. That's kind of the day-to-day practice. But at the highest level, what I mean by the full body yes is when we, in the, in the work context, when we are doing what we're truly meant to do, Right. When we can find this magic, this combination of all the things, you know, that make us up and we're able to do that. There's a Japanese concept called Ikigai. And Ikigai is this model to find your meaning. And it's the Venn diagram of four circles. And the four circles are 
what I love to do, what I'm good at, what the world needs, and what someone will pay me for. Now, this is, this is really challenging. And I would say, if you overlay that with your personal values, and then every decision that we make about our careers, about our lives, if we're getting closer and closer and closer to the center of those two bullseyes, you know, this Ikigai concept plus my personal values, then we're getting closer and closer and closer to living as the full body yes. Yes. <laughs> I just have to say that. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so I think we could go down those four paths and say how, if, if you have no practice or have never experienced a full body yes before, how would you start in, I guess in each, let's, let's go one by one in those. How do, sure. does somebody start to become proficient in, you know, it's almost like radar of sensing, oh, there is a full body yes happening here. How do they become sensitive to that by growing mindfulness and even compassion for themselves sure. to then work down through those four paths? Yeah, let's uh, let's think about it in a couple different ways before we use the Venn diagram. We can come back to the Venn diagram if you want, but a couple other ways to think about it. So mindfulness or meditation just kind of slows everything down in terms of the mind. And that helps us then listen to that deeper voice. So that's one way is just having a daily practice. Another way is when we hear that voice, we use it. So let me give you an example. Actually, if you want to try something right now, this is a good practice. So think about a choice you have to make between A or B. Now, again, it could be breakfast, but it's more powerful if you pick something that's real, like something that's hard in your life that you've been agonizing about. Like I have to choose between A and B. So go ahead and think about it in your mind, which one is A and which one is B. Right, and get really clear on the choices. Okay, so then we take, we'll do a little practice, 90 seconds. So go ahead and close your eyes for a second and think about choice A. You have chosen choice A in your life. Like this is you. You are a person who has chosen A. Now just let that seep into your body. Perhaps let it roll around in your mind. Fast forward it. What is your life going to be like with A? Again, feel how it feels in your body. And then take a deep breath in, deep breath out. Okay, we need a palate cleanser. So think about an orange rhinoceros for just a second. <laughs> okay, now think about choice B. You've chosen choice B. This is your life. You are a person who has chosen B. And let that roll around a little bit. Fast forward it. Let the feeling of that seep into your body. This is you. You are choice B. And then take a deep breath in and long exhale out. And just notice quickly which of the two felt better before the mind gets involved. Because here's what happens. Like for me, this almost always works. But what happens is let's say that B felt better. But then as soon as I'm done, the mind's like, yeah, but what about blah, 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 blah. Wow, this is, this is why we do it in the first place. It's because the mind is so busy, but there's something going on in our bodies. We're accessing information in a, in a deeper and different level. So this is a, a type of getting to the full body yes practice. That's a great place to start. And I, I've heard something similar along these lines before, but this kind of grounds it in, in a yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. And then back to, back to these kind of the Venn diagram or the filters, I think perhaps an easier place to start is our values, especially let's think about career for a second, because a lot of people listening to this are thinking about themselves as an entrepreneur or whatever their life choices are. But this works for all of your life choices. If you get really clear on your values and how do you get really clear on your values? 
Well, one way to do it is to think about the people in life you admire most. And then if you think about why you admire them, like what's the value you admire? So as an example, I really admire Abraham Lincoln. I really admire Gandhi. I really admire, you know, et cetera. So Abraham Lincoln, as an example, had a great sense of humor, but he had a singular focus on keeping the country together. He also had great courage. He had conviction. So I start writing down all these values that I appreciate. And I might have a list of 20 or 30, but I need to get those down to maybe my top five values of what's most important to me. And then when these choices come along, a choice in career, a choice in relationship, or perhaps a choice in choosing career or relationship, because there's seasons in life, like how much am I investing in work versus my family in this moment? Every one of these decisions, I can use those values as a filter. Am I making the right choice that's getting me closer to the center of my full body? Yes. And then when I'm clear on those values, I can start to look at this Venn diagram of, all right, well, from a career perspective, I start with what I love you know, and what I'm good at. And oftentimes people are like, yeah, but what I love and I'm good at, I'm, you know, my auntie, she's really good at crocheting. She's like, how am I going to make a career out of that? Because the other two circles are what the world needs and what someone will pay you for. Well, maybe you're really good at crocheting and maybe there's not very many people, if any, in the world who can make a living at crocheting. But what that says is you're detail oriented, right? So that same skill that makes you great at crocheting probably makes you a great project manager or some other thing that you're, is required to be detail-oriented. And so when we can start to see the similarities of our hobbies in the similarities of the things we do for a living, we can start to bring out the joy. It's like, oh yeah, I am really good at that thing. And the world does need it. And someone will pay me for it. And, you know, I like it too. And those allow us to get closer and closer and closer to the center of the bullseye. I think a lot of people would say, okay, with those four things, I- I'm aware of what I'm good at. And I'm aware of what I want to do or what I enjoy doing. And I think it's somewhat obvious whether I think either through my own means of entrepreneurial endeavors or through somebody else that the pay part is somewhat also simple in a sense. But the the what the world needs can be kind of daunting or vague or just macro level to discover. How would you say we go about discovering that? That's a great question. I think probably for most people, they have a gut instinct on, is this additive or detractive to the world? In other words, is this making the world a better place or a worse place? And that's a very subjective question, right? If I'm selling cars, yeah, the world needs that. People need cars. I'm acting as a vendor. I'm serving a purpose. But what's another thing I could do? If I'm trying to trick people with email marketing into buying something that clearly has no value, but I'm going to make money at it, I kind of like it because I'm making money, but the world doesn't need that. You know, anything that's nefarious, the world probably doesn't need. So to me, that's, that's actually a bar that people probably know already if the world needs it. So overall, to go back to one of the words that's part of your, your title, another way to maybe phrase it, is this something that's compassionate to the world? Is it adding mm. to the world? That's right. That's kind of where my mind goes with that. Right. Am I solving for the we instead of the me? Mm. Right. And I think most of the time, if we're moving from me to we, that has compassion at its roots. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Well, so that's actually one of the things I was going to ask about is this idea of, you know, in your role of growing compassion or, I mean, you said LinkedIn already was a compassionate place. Right. But what does that look like in places that aren't compassionate? moving from like a me to a we mindset. Mm. Let me give you some examples of how this shows up 
in business. And some places are already there and some places may see these as gaps. So as an example, our head of sales will stand in front of 5,000 salespeople at kickoff meeting and say, look, our job is to provide long-term value. So at the end of the quarter, don't sell something our customers don't need just so you can hit your quota. And I think, wow, that's amazing because this is not how I was trained as a 25-year-old salesperson, right? But that is moving from me to we. I have to imagine from the perspective of the customer, you're going to have a lot less attrition because they feel taken care of Yes, and they may not even consciously be aware of it, but it may reach the conscious level of they've always done right by me and that vibe, right? That's right. Yeah. Same with, uh, it absolutely happens with customers. You know, when a company cares about you and is trying to do the right thing or not the same thing with employees, you have less attrition with employees. Employees want to work at a place that has a good mission and vision that has doing good things in a world, but they also want to be treated as humans. And I actually think that this has been a gift of the pandemic, you know, maybe not in a lot of ways, but one of the good things is that we're realizing as companies how important our employees are and how important their mental well-being is and waking up to some of these offerings that we're talking about. And employees feel that or they feel the opposite. They know when a company really cares about them or does not really show that they care about them. Here's the thing. Any company who isn't I'm trying to figure out how, what's the best way to tactfully say this. I think I'll just say it bluntly and correct myself later. <laughs> say it bluntly. Yeah. Every company has to pay attention to their bottom line, which is to make a profit. Otherwise, the business disappears, and that has ramifications. However, what often many businesses don't realize is sometimes the best way to achieve the bottom line is to take care of your people the right way. Yeah. And that, that just yields so much more, you know, in other words, it's kind of like consistently being in therapy before the emergency happens, like couples counseling and it's absolutely necessary or there's a divorce kind of an emergency situation, right? Yeah. I would say you said sometimes I'm going to say always. Yeah. I was going to, yeah. So there, correct me. (laughs) So let's, let's think about in a personal relationship, me thinking versus we thinking. If you're married or you have a a partner or whatever, if you just think about me, 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 and my own happiness all the time and make every decision based on me that I want to be happy. Wow. What is the state of your relationship? Probably over time. It's probably not great. Right. But if you think about the we and part of that thinking is, wow, if I make my spouse happy, if I care about her and I'm doing things for my kids, I'm doing things for my family and I'm thinking about them. Here's what happens. They treat me better. They're more kind to me and I'm happier in the long run. So to make myself happier, I spend more time thinking about what I can do for my spouse. Now, the exact same thing happens in a company. Instead of just thinking about profit and purely focused on every decision, oh, does that make me more or less money? If I think about it in a way, it's like, how do I really provide value for my customers? How do I solve their problems? How do I really provide value for my employees? How do I make sure that this is a place where they can do their best work? And I have a good business model. Every time, if I make that investment, every time over the long run, it's going to be more profit for my company. It's a little counterintuitive, but this is how it works. Yeah, it definitely seems counterintuitive, but I've seen cultures and companies that have stated things like, we care about, they use the word family, and yet they have treated those people like anything but. Or or actually, maybe they do treat them like we can naturally consider people as like, oh, I've got to go see my family for Thanksgiving. They go that <laughs> yeah. route with it, right? 
the family word is a little bit problematic because there are times when it is the right thing to do to do layoffs, as an example, mm-hmm. or to eliminate jobs or to do consolidation. And, you know, that's tougher when you've indicated that it really is a family. But when the company does it as a balance, right, I have to balance the needs of the business, including the shareholders, including the customers and employees. The balance is where it's at. Because sometimes to do the right thing by the company, is to do some of these hard choices with employees. Yeah. It seems like we're talking about a perspective shift that I I don't think a lot of people have thought about too deeply if they've thought about it at all. And it seems like we're actually talking about a different form of success in a way. Yes. Redefining it, naming it something different, or at least measuring it differently. Well, I think so. And here's the thing. I think if we redefine our success as how can I have a great impact in the world? How can I do great things for the for my customers and my employees? What I also think happens is that success for the bottom line for the shareholders actually increases over time. But it's this mindset shift that says, how can we be a force for good in the world, which actually then leads to more profitability for the company? Yeah. So say I'm somebody that's at the top of a company. And they don't know that they agree with this. How do you plant the seed, the inception moment and have them, if they don't accept it as an outside idea, how do you get them to internalize it as maybe an idea they can have, you know, work in their own brain? (laughs) It's a good question. It's, it's similar to this question. You know, I lead meditation, I lead workshops. And sometimes at the end of the workshop, someone will come up and they'll say, Oh, this was awesome. My husband really needs this. How do I get him to meditate? And my answer is, no, it doesn't work that way. You you don't. But what you can do is you can model the behavior and you can share your own story about how it's been meaningful for you. And so I think this is the root of it. We can share the research because there's good research out there that shows that this is how it works. I can model the behavior. I can tell the story. We can all tell the story. And we hope that people will follow. But unless it comes from the inside out, unless they really care about their employees or they actually care about their customers, nothing changes. Now, what I would say is at the root of it, most executives actually do care about their customers. They actually do care about their employees. And it just takes a little bit of mind shift to say something like this. Look, in your company meeting, instead of bragging and talking about, hey, we're going to be the next $5 billion company or the next unicorn or the next $10 billion company, and that's where you're focused your energy with your employees. Instead of that, how about shifting to here is the impact we're going to have in the world. And let's share some of our customer success stories. Let's share how our customers were able to make the world a better place because of how we help them. That is an incredible shift, right? Or the advertising on TV. If they're spending $100 million on ads, instead of telling how awesome their product is, show us what their customers have been able to do. Show us that you care about your customers by showing what your customer has been able to achieve in the world. And it's these simple shifts that lead us into more of the we thinking instead of the me, 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 me thinking. Just like back to a relationship, how much do I talk about myself versus how much do I talk about us as a family or a spouse or my kids? Yeah, it's that shift in the language that we use and not just on an external level of how we talk about it with others that are part of the team or you know, whatever we want to call it, not family, yeah. but also the the language that we then use internally, because thinking about we instead of me on the inside changes my thinking. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Who am I solving this problem for? Am I solving for me or am I solving for a we? 
Because if we really internalized, just like a marriage or a partnership, if you really internalize the we, it changes how you approach that person. In the same way, if we really internalize, am I trying to have an impact on the world or just make a buck? Then it changes every decision I make as a leader. Man, I can really get a sense of how this would feel to somebody, you know, since I've been that person sitting in the cubicle and to see the leadership exemplifying this, how it would start to change and, and shape not only my thoughts in the cubicle, but my actions. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because if as a, it's just like a relationship. If you really don't love the person you're with, it changes your behavior. And if you're an employee and you feel either neutral or disgusted by your leadership, and it's just a job, like you're just there for a paycheck versus, wow, I'm part of something. Like, I feel like I'm part of this thing. It's such a change in what you'll do. You know, your amount of creativity explodes, the amount that you're willing to share, the amount that you're just look, just imagine the solutions you're going to provide for those end customers or for your teammates. You're just a better version of yourself. Yeah. Actually, then you're redefining success for you as an individual. I know we're going, you know, me to we, but it does then, you know, the, the, you know, what's, good for the many versus good for the few. Um, it, it does, <laughs> right. it, it does when it's good for the, we, it then becomes good for the me again. That's right. Like you were talking about in the marriage, it's when you're thinking about, you know, the, the marriage or the family and what's good for the whole family, then it suddenly comes back and rewards you individually. Exactly. Which again, then <laughs> goes back to what we were originally talking about, which is mental well being and how that feeds back into that. And so, it's kind of an individual perspective there too, as well. So. That's right. This is this is why we offer these programs because we know that when people develop themselves, when they are emotionally stable and mentally focused, and when they are at their best, then everybody wins. I wonder if somebody right now wants to start embarking on this in terms of reevaluating from a couple different perspectives here: their, their mindfulness, their compassion, what it is they're doing right now, career-wise, versus wanting to seek a higher level of fulfillment in mm. work and in life. It's not just an A and B type of yeah, yeah. thing. It's kind of, it's a big amorphous, like I don't even know what the size of the thing question is or multiple questions. How do they start? It goes back to the, to the values conversation we were having, right? Because sometimes we don't know what is our target? What does success look like? You know, we've been trained that success in school was to get an A. And if you got an A, you went to a good school. And if you got a good school, you went to a good job. And if you got a good job, you get promoted and you'd have a blah, 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 right? It's this, this mountain that we've been trained that is success. But instead, if success is by our own designing, based on our own values, then we want to keep moving to the center of the bullseye. Am I living my values? A lot of people don't really are clear on what that means. And so it's this exercise of you know, like we talked about before, finding, finding a list of 20 or 30 or 50 values based on who I honor, you know, who I love. And then getting that list down to five or six things. And then each decision I make, whether I take this job or that job or this project or this project, or what school I go to or which relationship I end or start. If I'm getting closer and closer and closer to the center of the bullseye, of living into those values, then that is success. That's the different mountain. You know, we've been climbing the wrong mountain, probably most of us, but shifting our attention to this other mountain, this mountain of our values, 
that's where we get true fulfillment, I think. Well, and if they think about it that way, in terms of amount, they say, well, I'm either already at the top of this one or have spent so much time. It's the sunk cost fallacy of I have to fulfill, you know, the time, resource, whatever energy that I've already sunk into this opportunity and keep going this direction. I can't just climb back down and go different. And yet, I don't know. If that mountain is making you happy, like if it's truly making you happy, if you think about your values and it's like, okay, I value the effort I put in and I value the work that I'm doing and I value the money I'm making and I value all the stuff that comes with it. And that's more important than all these other values, then fine. But if you look at it and you're honest with yourself and it's like, oh, actually what I really value is this thing that I don't have right now. What I really value is this other thing. And maybe there's, you know, sometimes it's not a totally black and white. Sometimes it's a, a, a bleeding of the colors that, you know, I start to make some simple shifts that get more of my values into the thing I'm already doing. It's sometimes simple to say and harder to do, but this is where I would start. Yeah, it, it really does come back to spending that time, one, using mindfulness practices in terms of meditation, but then also becoming mindful of who you are and what your values are and what's most important to you, your priorities, what you what you value, who you value, and starting not from scratch because you've probably already been working off some of those anyway, but mm-hmm. getting more clarity on those to really be, again, to get back to having a more full body, yes. That's right. That's right. I think, you know, I'll tell a story. So I was in my ops role. I'd been in my role for four years. I'd been volunteering as the, as the uh, head of mindfulness, but it was a volunteer position. And a recruiter reached out to me and she was telling me about this job. It was going to be a COO role, right? That's, that was the next logical step in my traditional career. And the role was in a state that was two states away in a town I didn't want to live in. It was in an industry I didn't really want to live in. But wow, it was a COO role. But, you know, my daughter had just started high school and I, I didn't want to move my daughter and et cetera, et cetera. And I was telling the woman, no, my ego was super intrigued. But in my gut, like I knew like this wasn't right because the job itself didn't sound that interesting. But wow, the money and the title and the everything else. Oh, my ego was lit up. And so I'm telling the woman, no. And she's like, all right, all right. Well, hey, before you say no, just know that like we're recruiting from the who's who of Silicon Valley. Like it's filled with Google and Apple and you name it. This is a unicorn, you know, on a rocket ship. You're going to make so much money. So before you say no, take the weekend and think about this. Would you do it for life-changing money? And I was like, ah, dang it. Like there it is, right? There's that, that rub. Like I knew what was right. I knew what was in my heart versus my mind. But here this was, this temptation. And I think this is the choice. This is what I'm talking about of moving from, are we moving further away from our values or closer to our values? And it happens in this type of decision. So ultimately, I did not take that job because it would have moved me further away from my values. Um, But wow, was it tempting. And I know that each of us are tempted by something like that on a daily basis. I would be remiss if I didn't ask (laughs) for the sake of the listener. You mentioned it earlier as a palate cleanser, the orange rhinoceros that's on the cover of (laughs) the book. (laughs) The significance behind that, if you would elaborate. Oh, for sure. I'll tell you the story. So, so first of all, I wanted something on the cover of the book where people look at it and they're like, what, what is that? And (laughs) and hopefully it's interesting enough that they open it. 
When I was in my operations role, my chief lieutenant was leaving. He was taking a promotion inside the company. And so I needed to replace him. And this was the most important hire that I had made in my career. It was really going to be critical to my success, whoever we hired. And because of that, we got a lot of people involved. I got other VPs, country managers involved in the decision-making process. We had a big team that was all doing the interviewing and we scoured the earth for candidates. And we got down to the final two candidates and they were both fantastic. Like They both totally could have done the job. And there was no more information that we could go get. No more interviewing. Like at some point, you just have to make a call. And exactly half of the interview team said, oh, I think it's candidate A, the external candidate. Candidate B, I don't really know. And exactly half the team said, for sure, it's the internal candidate. And the other candidate, I don't really know. Now, my life strategy is around likability and collaboration. So this put me in a really uncomfortable spot. Like I was going to have to upset half the team. And these were very senior people we had on the team. So what to do, right? Well, some people, they're like, okay, I'm going to go with my gut. I had something a little bit different in mind. So I was in contemplation one day having a conversation with the thing, whatever you want to call it, the universe, the divine, whatever. And like, you know what? I don't do this very often, but this time I'm going to ask for a sign. So if it's candidate A, and I thought about candidate A, and I'm looking for a real sign, like something I'm going to see in real life. And she was an Indian woman with long, dark hair. It's like, okay, if it's candidate A, I'm going to see dark hair in a bun with chopsticks to him. And instantly, as soon as I thought it, my mind is like, what, what are you, what are you chopsticks? Like she's Indian, like, fine, let it go, let it go. And if it's candidate B and this person had an orange backpack, if it's candidate B, I'm going to see an orange rhinoceros. And again, instantly the mind is like, what, how am I going to see an, like, Have you ever seen an orange rhinoceros before? Like, how is this going to happen? But this is what I saw. And so I'm like, okay, fine. I'll turn it over 24 hours. I'm watching. Let's go. And I let it go. And I'm looking for real signs, like in real life. But I let it go. The next day, we're at the movies with my team. You know, we'd taken off early to go watch the movies. The latest Star Wars movie has come out. It's been a little while. And I'm sitting there having popcorn, just letting the weight of the day, the weight of the week just kind of relax off of me. And there on the screen in an animated preview or preview for an animated film rolls across the screen an orange rhinoceros. (laughs) <laughs> and so so instantly the mind is like whoa, whoa, whoa actually was it maroon was it kind of maroonish orange like is that really a right yeah and i just checked i'm like does this feel right is it you know candidate b and it felt right and i let it go and just felt that full body yes or i just knew that this was the answer and i really felt connected to something bigger than myself and of course this person was fantastic in their job But to me, that's an example of how I go use it. I go try to find it and connect to the universe in a deeper way. Yeah. There's a lot of homework that can be done from this book that is well worthwhile to do. I say that about a lot of books, actually. Doing the homework on a book is so much more important than just reading it or skimming it. And so, uh, But I'd love to get people directed to where they can find out more about the book, uh, you know, if there's a, you know, what's the best place to direct people to? I know everybody's like, it's where all fine books are sold, but like, you can find me at scottshoot.com or the full body. Yes.com. You can find the book anywhere at Amazon, but I will say I learned something new. And that is if you want to buy books online, but support your local bookshop, you can use bookshop.org. So I think that's really cool. Like we have a little bookshop I like here in San Jose, California, where I live. And if I go to bookshop.org, I can designate my local bookshop and they'll get the proceeds from the sale of the book. So the book is called The Full Body Yes. 
Yeah, where all good books are found. <laughs> I love that tip, though. I, I really like that. I'm going to have to use that, and I'm going to start, yeah. you know, providing that link in the show notes when people uh, have books that they are talking about on the show. So thank you yeah, for that. It's really good. Heads up, help the little guy. That's a way to be about we instead of me. Right there. Exactly. Awesome. Exactly. Well, Scott, it's been great talking with you, and uh, we're going to have to do it again soon at some point Please. in the future. So, open invitation next time you you have a new topic you want to maybe start, you know, workshopping with audiences. Here's a stage for you. Beautiful. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's another episode crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Scott Shute, and I hope that you got something out of this when it comes to mindfulness and compassion and the we and the me. It was a refreshing conversation for me to have regarding this. If you found something beneficial about this podcast episode and you know somebody else that needs to hear it, which, let's face it, you do, think of that person, share it with that person, do me that favor of sharing it with that person, and that will really help me and the show and them once they listen to it, right? That's how this works. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you next episode.